The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. My name is Arun Sudharman. I'm here at the 2023 Cannes Lions, and I'm joined by three people from BCW. We have Rebecca Grant, who's Global Chief Brand Officer and UK CEO. We have Lisa Story, who is Global CSO for BCW Movatory and is also the UK CSO. And we have Eleanor Wilcox, who's the MD of the Movatory and is a Senior Advisor for Corporate and Public Affairs at BCW UK. And so a very simple question to start off with, what is BCW Movatory? Rebecca, I'll put that to you first, please. Um, what it is is a labour of love, quite honestly, Arun. It's been, it's been about 18 months since we started this project. And, um, you know, BCW has always been an agency that moves people. And um, we wanted to make sure that we stayed at the forefront of that in terms of what our clients might not even know that they need yet, um, but how we can anticipate their changing needs and what um, how we can make sure that we stay at the forefront of what moving people is um, and so the mover tree was born and it's I think Maya described it as an R&D arm of BCW which um, is exactly what we're hoping to do in terms of pioneering thinking and developing new tools um, that ensure that we can better engage our audiences and the piece of work that we've been spending the last 18 months on is actually looking at how we speak to audiences through their values and we have an academically sound and approved approach for proving that if we do that we can engage them more effectively and I think that is the the ultimate goal really is when you're in this environment that we're all in of ever-increasing change volatility you know a post-pandemic world you know tech disruption social movements um, what clients are looking for is how how can you navigate the change how can you be authentic how do you know when to engage Um, and these are all questions that we answer through the lens of speaking to people's values because they are what we're calling a persistent truth so your values once formed in adolescence might gently shift but they ultimately are the constant um, and that's been a very powerful um, place for us to start if you've got the constant of values against a backdrop of world in change and flux um, that was a really interesting starting point for us and we're really proud of the work that we've developed since um, and so the first kind of big project you've done is this age of values research which looks at how people prioritize their values and I think you surveyed is it more than 36,000 people across 30 countries yielding around 30 million data points so who would like to condense that into a, a nice series of sound bites into what you discovered you can take it in turn okay so We wanted to understand who holds what values and how those values are actually driving what people genuinely are interested in and care about and ultimately how that drives behaviour. So yes, we conducted an immense study with working with a really consistent and strong framework. So 
Lots of people talk about values, but actually we used and draw on the values framework of Professor Schwartz, who's managed to take all of that complexity of 50 so values and create a very simple, solid, academically rigorous framework that we could then go and research against. So yes, we conducted the research, and of course we've got a number of, of findings that we can share with you. So I suppose the first thing to start with, as Lisa says, we all talk about values, but we didn't, we weren't even sure that people could name their values, if they could live in accordance with their values, and how those values drove their expectations and demands of business. So we kind of started at a, a really high level, and we found that the top three values globally are benevolence, which are about caring about your nearest and your dearest and those around you and the community around you, but also universalism societal. So that's caring about people beyond those in your immediate environment and security. So essentially we found that we are all much nicer, kind of more egalitarian kind of safety seekers than you may actually think. And it was quite comforting, I think, we found, because we... We know this is an age of polarisation, we know that this is at play, but at heart we are not all out for ourselves and it's both comforting and it's not hugely surprising in one sense because for societies to function, you know, th these are the values we need to keep us going. But th that was one of our findings. Um, do you want to talk about another top line one? Yeah, so what we wanted to explore as well was the relationship between values and classic demographics, which we know from a communications point of view we rely on pretty heavily. Um, and we had kind of insights around those, so particularly around geography, around generations, and also importantly, gaps. So, okay, so in terms of geography, let's Let's imagine most people tend to look at the world through uh, geographical continents, business priorities, and what we found is in this context of security that Ellie's out of consistency that, can I say that again? So what we found is yes, at a broad level, global population, there are these underlying three values that dominate, but actually if you start looking around where there are specific clusters of values, that speaks much more to different cultural regions and that's, that makes sense really because values are formed in adolescence but in the context of the community, society, culture, religion that you are growing up with. So that, that provided a really useful lens if you're thinking about targeting at a global level in particular. How would you play to the different nuances and priorities across the global population from that lens? The other key finding was really that the, that generations really is not is not an adequate way of approaching targeting, um, particularly when it comes to Gen Z. So we all know how many briefs come in on a regular basis where this this group, this cohort, is presented as unified, um, and we also know that we're overwhelmed with data, particularly about that generation. But we wanted to understand the why that sits behind the what. So. Gen Z is not, uh, well the generations have a lot of similarities between them, so I'm trying to remember the page in the report that I can point you to, but you can see that the general pattern of similarity is true, so generations almost have more in common than they have apart, but when you look within, like Gen Z, it's actually not homogenous in any way, so to take a simplistic view of top three values for Gen Z, for example, 
it's really not nuanced enough if you're trying to get to the heart of this audience across different regions. You cannot expect a Gen Z, you know, in Latin America to be engaging or being driven by values in the same way as in English-speaking countries, for example. It's, it's, so we've learnt a lot about that. And then the third, the third key learning... Well, it's worth saying we proved our hypothesis. So as Beck said, we want, we believe that, you know, BCW can help our clients move people. And we believe that values is the means to do this. And part of what we wanted to do in the research is show this to be true. Um, and we proved this, but we also found that the values you think that might drive behaviours aren't the ones that you'd expect. So we looked at the purchase of an EV. And if you think about, well, if you what people may assume drives the purchase of an EV is a desire to protect the environment, worries about climate change, which we call, well, which um, according to the Schwartz um, values, is universalism nature. What we found was that the values that drove purchase of an EV were actually hedonism, self-direction, and stimulation. And stimulation. So, what, so it was actually a desire for novelty, a desire to show status through either wealth or um, kind of, for want of, you know, doing something that they, people knew would land well within, you know, with their friends and family that was driving that behaviour. So if, if you think about the implications for a business, if you're going to try and sell people an EV, if you do that through a lens of climate change, you may risk actually losing out on building a relationship with people who would actually be very easily moved to purchase if you spoke to them through, a diff through different values. It's, it's both, that's both, I think you described it in, in, a, in our story as, as counterintuitive, mm. but then it's also, it feels a little bit intuitive as well, given what we know of people, but do, in, in, in terms of your clients and, and the businesses that you're advising, how big a departure do you feel this is in terms of the kind of the way they traditionally segment their audiences? I suppose the first place to start is that what what we've got is data that backs it up because I think you're right you can you know the, the EV example might feel initially counterintuitive and then when you think harder about it you think actually of course people are buying for great experiences and it's an exciting piece of technology and people want to be part of something that is at the cutting edge or you know it's still on an early adopter curve um, in terms of the data and the rigor behind it I think that is where we're offering more confidence in terms of the route um, that, that, that we're pursuing um, because I think the beauty of values is it innately feels true so although we've got the traditional demographic data and information we can now then layer it with a sense, an understanding of values and how those are in play um, and then I think the the other piece is looking at um, uh, values in terms of um, the context with which they're operating within as well because it's not just about a brand's own values or an audience's values but also then how values are showing up in culture and in, in the context too so I think it's a combination of all of those things but I think as PR professionals we've got a lot smarter in terms of how we apply and use data and the bit that I always loved about the work that we've 
done is that we can very simply take the archetypes, which is the, um, I'm sure Lisa will come on to a bit later in terms of talking about our audiences and how we segment them, um, but we can um, very simply um, find a way of um, aligning our archetypes with an, with the um, way that a client might already be talking about its audiences. Um, and I think we're not we're not making it complicated we're actually helping clients in a very efficient way be able to do something and add this thinking um with a very light touch but i don't know if you want to talk about the archetypes in a bit more detail So, so it's a really good question because we know many clients have their own segmentations whatever those audiences are whether they're consumers or business audiences, stakeholders, we know that. Um, but we also understand that classic demographics only gets us so far. And when we when we look at the psychographic elements in a lot of our client segmentation, they they tend to sit on a attitudinal or motivational or kind of needs-based kind of level. And what what we think is really important about values is they sit underneath all those things you know as Rebecca has said the values of an audience or a segment is actually what's driving those attitudes driving those beliefs driving those intentions or conversions in particular contexts. so so we think that's important it can be foundational to have a values perspective aligned but on the basis of what we found that demographics were interesting and to degree some you know useful to some degree it wasn't enough. So what we did is we worked with our academic partners, leaders in the field of values research, cross-cultural marketing, people like Julie Lee, Hester Van Herk, and we embarked on actually segmenting the global population according to their values, which I can't tell you what a long and intense and difficult project that was, and I'm looking quite relaxed now, but seriously, we've all been super stressed about this. But we've done it, and we've done it credibly, and we've done it in a way that is... Um, applicable to clients so we found that from a values perspective we took an archetypal analysis approach not segmentation but archetypal analysis that we all everyone here sitting today and belong to one of seven archetypes um, depending on the dominant values that we each have and what we've been able to do is understand each of those archetypes how they're driving their their interests generally in life, um, their concerns, the degree to which they they feel that their governments are aligned with their own values, their government policies, brands, are brands kind of meeting their expectations from a DNI perspective or whatever. And and as, as Rebecca has said, crucial part of that work was to ensure that we could create a way of making those archetypes to be aligned and connected with existing segmentation. Mm-hmm. So we created a typing tool, which we've tested, our data scientists, it's, you know, it's got like 97% reliability. So we can effectively take any client segmentation and through asking, through our typing tool, it's only 11 questions, but they're very smart questions, we can connect that segmentation to our archetypes and unlock those 32 million data points. So yeah, we're, we're pretty, we're keen, keen to be uh, using those. And you identified seven values archetypes, right? So I'm gonna, should I test you on, the, <laughs> on them now? First no. on the buzzers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. No. If, if you'd like, you could talk us through them, but actually what I'm kind of more interested in was, was there anything that surprised you in the values archetypes that you identified? Um, 
No. I, no, I'm sorry. I don't, I, think, I don't think so. We've been living with these 11 values. When we actually worked out statistically which were the values that were causing these differences that enabled us to kind of identify them as archetypes, each of these archetypes makes total sense. So we had a little bit of fun thinking through with something like the success seeker. This is um, the archetype that is driven by power, achievement and hedonism. So I haven't seen any of that in can. No, I, I know. And I know. And none of us know anyone like that, right? Yeah. But, you know, this is, this is, a, this is an archetype that's driven for personal success and status but wants to do it in a way that is fun now of course can our industry is populated with people like that but the, the person that came to our mind was Logan Roy and we wanted to have some fun matching the characters of succession to our archetypes but found actually most of them were success seekers and we and we we couldn't work across the seven types but um, yeah so I think they're all applicable. I'm not, I'm not going to take you through each of them, but I would yeah. say that anyone listening who wants to explore them more, please go and read about them on bcwmovertree.com. We have a really um, light introduction to the archetypes and you can see their dominant values, how that drives their life philosophies and the implications for communications, because obviously going back to the success seeker, um, the question that communicators would have to answer there is, you know, how does this help me get ahead? And, and by the way, can you help me have fun whilst I'm doing it? Now, that might seem obvious, but how many of us think like that when we're building, you know, creative or messaging or content? We're actually, is it answering that fundamental values need of this audience? Can I do another little plug and say we're talking so much about values. If you're actually interested in finding out your own, that's also on the website oh. because I think sometimes, I don't know, we're hopefully we've pricked some people's interests in terms of, uh, you know, what actually their own values are. And um, I think people intuitively know when something feels right or they have a gut reaction to something. But um, being able to actually articulate them, um, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people like me who were interested to see what the uh, the official output was going was gonna, to was gonna say. And I think it's worth saying as a kind of a note of comfort to everyone, there is no such thing as a good or a bad value. So people often bring <laughs> preconceptions <laughs> or prejudices to it but there is they are all equally kind of good or bad and so in the same way all the archetypes there are no good or bad archetypes but what you might may find is that you'll find particular numbers of archetypes kind of within one place as you said success seekers in Cannes and in kind of different places we when we launched internally we asked colleagues to find out what their values were and share them with us and then we sorted us according to our archetypes and we found that yeah they're applauding me we found that within bcw it was the i I think i've lost the archetype standby and i'll tell you within bcw the strongest archetype was it was the visionary wasn't it so within bcw there is a preponderance of people who value independence freedom and creativity but are mindful of the environment which again no good or bad archetype but we quite liked that didn't we And actually, you asked me if there's something that did surprise me. There was, there was. And that's, um, we wanted, when we um, developed and identified the archetypes, we wanted to see that through the lens of Gen Z because we started this project feeling, knowing that Gen Z is not one homogenous cohort. And we actually identified that Gen Z 
dominates four of our seven archetypes. They dominate the success seeker archetype, which I've spoken mm -hmm. about. The adventurer, which mm -hmm. is an archetype much more focused on freedom, creativity, meeting challenges head on, doing new things. But also the good neighbor, and the good neighbor is actually almost like the mainstay of the world population. Mm -hmm. Don't underestimate how many of us are good neighbors, and they mm -hmm. are people who focus on their family, uh, society around them, and want security, and, and our societies couldn't function without those. And last but not least, and I suppose this is maybe where personally I was a bit surprised, the conformist. Mm. So the conformist is, is an archetype that is driven to succeed, wants power, um, wants success, but actually wants to maintain the status quo at all costs. So this is a, a Gen Z archetype that is keen to get along, but without ruffling any feathers. Mm -hmm. and, and so some of these archetypes do dispel this kind of dominant and maybe not very inclusive view we yeah. have of this generation. That, that, that's what I find quite interesting here is that there's, there's something almost a little bit hope, hopeful yeah. about this research in that it finds that there, maybe there's more we have in common mm -hmm. than that divides us. Yeah. And that kind of runs a little bit counter, I guess, to the narrative we hear every day in the media, whether it's around culture wars, whether it's around politicization, um, or even geographic, geopolitical tension. Um, do you think that companies are perhaps buying in more to that kind of narrative that um, you know everyone is different, everyone's on different sides of political divides and they're maybe a little bit afraid uh, of, of, of how they go out to market because of that, those kinds of uh, concerns. I, de I definitely think clients are worried about having a very vocal audience who disagrees with whatever bold creative they're going to come out with and we see that across CMOs as, um, in particular where um, they want to do bold work that you know cuts through the noise and grabs attention and in doing so there isn't they know they're going to provoke a reaction from the other 50% of people who disagree um, but I think this is where the values work is so important because it's if, if you can be true to the values and authenticity of yourself as a brand and understand the values of your audiences and speak to them, you shouldn't really be afraid of creating conversation. Um, you should hold true to what is right for you and how you are going to shift your narrative over time. Um, and, and that is really the secret and the kind of navigation that we offer clients as, a, as an industry too. So I think clients need to be prepared um, for what might be what they might see as a backlash or you know uh, but I also think that um, we shouldn't let it um, water down or make creative more vanilla um, because it's really important to cut through and actually if you can have that guidance of a, of a value set and know that you are being true to them um, that should hold you in good stead. So I think it's so relevant for what we're doing now and I would urge clients to be bold in how they communicate because it's absolutely essential in terms of speaking to audiences and cutting through. Yeah, I was just going to build on that. I mean, one of the reasons we called the report The Age of Values is because, you know, our lives uh, have always been directed by our values, but values aren't just driving the conversation now, they're part of the conversation. 
So it feels to us that it's going to become, hopefully, um, more part of our culture to bring values to the forefront of our conversations because, as we've, we've heard, we all tend to share you know, those key dominant values, but we need to allow room and space also for people to hold different values and to have you know, open conversation that understands each other's values without that being a big issue other than a conversation about we hold different values and we see this issue in a different way. I mean, Bex's point about clients staying true to the values of themselves and their audience is true, but looking a little bit more broader from a cultural perspective, I think we expect to see the subject of values becoming more openly discussed and part of our culture as well. And do you see, do you see this impacting corporate values? Because actually, when we talk about values, we often talk about it through the prism of what are, particularly in, in our business, we often talk about it in terms of, okay, what is this company's values? Is it living up to them? And quite often it, it may not be, and then, you know, then there's some sort of backlash. Um, do you see this research perhaps influencing how companies themselves determine their values, often, I guess, in conjunction with their employees and, and, and their workforce? Yeah, we've been talking about that. It's not just the corporate values of each um, uh, of each of our our clients or or the organisations we work with, um, but also a way of understanding what the values are of the people that work for those brands. So I think there's there's two different ways that this is quite useful. So um, we we've, we've been talking to one client who's been particularly interested in understanding through the lens of business transformation how to. Um, uh, understand the values of of their employees to be able to affect the change they want to see, or how to engage particular particular members of employees. Maybe that's in their retail stores, for example, versus head office. Or so I think um, understanding the values of the people within your organisation is really important. But then also you've got your kind of corporate values too, and I think. You know, we've all been in offices where you see values written on a wall and there might be three or four of them. But actually understanding does that speak to the people that you are that were within your workforce, I think is a really interesting question um, and something worth exploring. Yeah, and I'd also say we've learned an awful lot about values because if we look at sometimes what, what are stated corporate values, some of them are some of them aren't values. Their goals or, or other things. So, I think we can look at corporate values through the human lens. There's no point having a series of terms and words if they don't actually engage in a meaningful world a way with your audience, you know, employees, or with the outside world as well. And I think then, so there's defining values that speak to humans. And then I think there's this sense of how do you actually bring them into play from a communications point of view. So. How many of us actually think when we deliver plans or creative, are these actually speaking to the values of our audience? Are we, is the content, is the delivery, are, you know, if, if, if uh, universalism and societal is such a key value for a target audience, our ideas not just talking about society, but are we enabling people to come together through our ideas and create that, that universalism society? So I think, yeah. What do you do? I mean, you could, but so you have the values archetypes, but you may have someone, for example, that believes in freedom of expression and someone that doesn't. How do you reconcile those kinds of differences within these archetypes? 
or, or, or do you not? Well, you have companies, for example. Okay. They have their stated values, for ex- you know, okay. and, and some companies will say we believe in freedom of expression, we believe in human rights, we believe mm-hmm. in diversity yeah. and inclusion. Yeah. But when you're talking about the research you've done, which is yeah. looking at people's values, yeah. are, are we just saying you you kind of try to ignore those kinds of differences amongst people? No, no, no. You know. We've all worked for a very long time to understand stakeholders, partners, and all all those audiences that can have an impact on business success or you know corporate reputation, whatever. This the archetypes are very useful for guiding insight into how you prioritise. So we can't speak to everybody, to every value in everything. But who 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 is core and who is important, and are we aligned with those? the values of those archetypes or those audiences and is that going to be true tomorrow and going into the future so it's it's brilliant insight for a part of you know a a way of planning that we do really well anyway but just provides that additional layer and clarity and stability that helps us manage what's going on right now sure and are we going kind of back to the future here I, i can remember a time when archetypes were really popular um, and then I, I heard less and less about them, and it did become all about generations um, and maybe geographies. Um, is there a case to be made that, that you know archetypes are more important in this day and age? So archetypes aren't new. Mm. I mean, there's, there's yeah, they're definitely not new. They're I know, definitely yeah. not new. And can I get a bit geeky? Sure. You might edit this out later. <laughs> um, but essentially. Um, Things like generations bring people together based on a demographic, which is age. And segmentations tend to group people based on similarity. What Archetypes does is to look at the data and find secure, fixed points of difference to which you can then group people around. So that means they're stable and that means they they have rigor and integrity, which means over time you can continue to build your understanding because you're adding to that fixed point of the archetype that's defined it. If you do segmentation, something can shift, you know, an attitude can shift, an age group can get older and suddenly they're out of date and then there you are, back into field. So archetypes, stable, fixed points, that you can then add data to, which which gives it longevity, sustainability, and you know, I'll say it again, we're absolutely delighted that our academic partners are holding our data up to be the best values data that they've seen on this subject, and are very proud to have been part of creating these archetypes with us. Well, um, Bex, Lisa, and Eleanor, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to go and see what. Uh, archetype I am I'm really keen uh, and yeah I'm, I'm, I'm keen to see how your movie tree develops and, and the, the more research that you come out with so thank you all thanks thank you you've been listening to the provoke podcast brought to you by provoke media and produced by the international broadcast specialist marketers.